It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And coming up, the verdict in the Mike Strickland versus Antifa case. Another Portland Antifa case is shaping up with another figure. And this case has some hallmarks of the Strickland Antifa affair and double standard justice. Andy knows in the news again, he's got a great question. And the Chauvin jury is seated in the case of George Floyd's death in police custody. Get ready for a guilty verdict because this is a hanging jury. It's all coming up. Now, Antifa watcher Andy No has a question for all the people now up in arms in virtue signaling about the Asian hate. You've seen all the hashtags on all the social media about stop Asian hate. And all of a sudden... And now we're told it's a white supremacist problem and it's a Donald Trump problem because he called it the Wuhan coronavirus. It's the China flu or whatever words to that effect that Donald Trump used. And that's all of a sudden the reason why there's additional um, Asian hate, which is interesting. It's uh, stupid, but sure, it's interesting. So anyway, Andy Noah was asking, uh, hey, how come no one stepped up to help me when Antifa beat me up and soaked me with their milkshakes that turned out to be some sort of caustic brew of chemicals? Gee, why was everybody silent then? That's because it wasn't de rigueur. It was not in the news. It was, well, his case was in the news, but it wasn't a virtue signaling kind of a thing. And so they couldn't get any, I don't know, virtue points any currency out of it. So he got roughed up so much that he ended up with a brain bleed and got scanned at a Portland, Oregon hospital. And so he's wondering, hey. And you'll notice I saw an interesting video of an amalgamation, a, a mashup of all these videos from Stop Asian Hate things um, having to do with, um, there's Joe Biden, there's Donald Trump calling it the Chinese virus. There is uh, our, our people who are on the streets, hey, hey, ho, ho, Asian hate has got to go. And it's all of the same people. It is all of the same people trying to turn this around. And you might, you might appreciate this. Uh, you know, the uh, Asians are called white um, for purposes of progressive causes and that sort of thing. And that's one of the reasons why they gave to uh, keep Asians out of select universities because they were flooding the zone there so much because uh, the Asians pay more attention to education and do better in school than do other people groups. And so therefore, uh, according to progressives and the uh, offendanistas and all those people, they were, you know, they were having too much success and they needed to be stopped. And so the uh, Trump administration thought this was wrong. I mean, discriminating uh, discriminating against an entire group of people because they are of a particular ethnic persuasion and happen to do better in school. You know, he thought this was really a, a bad thing. Uh, the progressives who are now saying, hey, hey, ho, ho, Asian hate has got to go, were saying it was a good thing because... Black people, brown people, we got to get more of those guys in Yale and Harvard and Columbia. And so the the folks at the Trump administration sued Yale University to say, you can't stop. You can't start and continue on with this duplicitous thing, this wholesale discrimination against one particular ethnic group. It's just not constitutional. 
Um, it is not okay. It is unethical. It is all of those, all of the above. And so they uh, they sued Yale University. And then you know who undid that lawsuit? Uh, the first, uh, I don't know, within days of being in office, I think it was February 2nd, uh, Joe Biden dropped it. Yeah, so I'm sorry. What? What? Now, recently, just FYI, because I wrote about this recently at PJ Media, and I thought, oh, gee, was you know, come on, you guys. Antifa held a a uh, rally. Um, it's you know what you what you call Antifa rallies and marches, precursors to riots. And the cops know this, and anybody who's been watching them knows this. But this time, they decided to take a different tack, and you've got to appreciate you got to appreciate them for doing this. And it just made their members mad. You know, the imaginary Antifa members? Yeah, those guys. Yeah, um, they're all ticked off. And, and uh, of course, uh, the Prague Twitter went nuts on it and said, well, I can't believe you guys are doing this. And why? what were they doing? They were carrying around a sign saying Antifa loves you. At, no, seriously, Antifa loves you. And, and by all means, go to this comment section of my story over at PJ Media and catch the... Uh, Jesus Loves Me rendition of Antifa Loves You on the comment section over there because it's absolutely hilarious because, of course, uh, they don't love you. They're doing this as a total psyops. And they were also deking out the cops from that particular location, which is in the Pearl District of Portland, over to the ICE headquarters where they set stuff on fire. That was the whole purpose. And then there was another thing they did in Olympia, the pre, you know, earlier in the day. And, you know, you just have to appreciate the fact that they're trying to, you know, switch it up a little bit. Antifa loves you, which is something you always hear by every abuser after they have some remorse and are going to get caught. And, and I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm so sorry. I love you. It did not go down well with their their members, but that doesn't matter. Somebody else is calling the shots in Antifa, apparently. Now, so... The crazy man, white guy, who killed the two whites and six Asians at the sex shops in Georgia said he did it because he's a sex addict and wanted to remove the temptation so he went and killed everybody. Obviously horrible. Stop Asian hate trends on social media. It's the topic du jour. This started in the Bay Area with black men attacking Asians. And I've been watching this sort of sort of Oche on the side, waiting for something to happen. Uh, you know, something news peg that I could use that I could write about in uh, in PJ Media. And of course, it all blew up before I had a chance to do any more Bay Watch, uh, Bay Area Watch. But there was a point at which black men were organizing to help Asian people and they were escorting them to their businesses because a lot of them are elderly. You know, it just never ceases to amaze me. I go up there, I'll go to the Tenderloin and I'll see all of these Asian people, these old Asian people in retirement centers in the Tenderloin. And it's, I mean, good God, you know, could you please clean up the neighborhood for these people? Because everybody's on drugs, they're out there shaking, pooping in the streets and everything. So, you know, they, they invite, invite illegality there. And so, uh, so folks in um, San Francisco, as well as Oakland, were getting together and escorting these old people to their businesses, because they're all business owners, because they're very uh, industrious people. And, uh, you know, they're not getting rich off this stuff. They're still old people, and they're working in their doggone stores. So, anyway. 
So stop Asian hate trends on social media. And everyone is supposed to drop everything and say, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing since, oh, I don't know, the black church burning in uh, burnings in the 1990s. Remember that one? That was a fake story. How about the all the preschools that had satanic rituals in them? Remember that one? Yeah, that was another media hyped fake story. And I'm going, I'm, I'm asking a list, actually, of all the fake stories that the media have promulgated over the years that they insisted that we get upset about them. And, and now we start hashtags about them, you know, save our girls, you know, pouty lips and, and all these things to at least draw attention to these, these uh, cases. And I'm going to tell you that most of, not most of them, about a good third of those cases in uh, the Bay Area, certainly, as well as in Washington State and others, are, a third of them are done by black males. So it's not a white supremacist thing per se. Well, that leaves a lot of white people, you know, doing these bad things. But I'm not entirely sure we know who's actually promulgating these things, although we do have uh, some some photos, some photos. So up until five minutes ago, Asians were called white by the left because they were too successful. And now uh, white supremacists are going after the white Asians and uh, probably white Hispanics like George Zimmerman and and uh, causing trouble because they're white supremacist. Okay, another mass shooting, and uh, this one in Baltimore, did I say Baltimore? That's just a nightly thing for Baltimore. No, this is in Boulder, Colorado, another mass shooting, this time by a white supremacist, except uh, that's what everybody said, you know. That's what that's what the leftist Twitterati were saying. And you, you get lots of inf- interesting information on Twitter, which is why I refer to it a lot, even though Jack Dorsey hates me and keeps stealing my my uh, followers. But uh, I'm still a thousand away from where I used to be. Uh, so anyway, um, it, it, this is what all the Twitterati were saying, that it was a white supremacist thing. And oh, my goodness, what's going on? And he's got an AR-15. And oh, my God, why don't we just get rid of those those weapons? Don't worry. Asked and answered. Coming along here in just a second. But guess, you're not going to believe this. Guess what? The guy was Muslim. <laughs> Quote, he would talk about him being Muslim and how if anybody tried anything, he would file a hate crime. A person who knew the Boulder shooting suspect details how Ahmad, this is his name, Ahmad Al-Isa, it could be Isa, like Daryl Isa, pronounces his name. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't want me to put him in the same sentence, but Isa, you know, that's how he pronounces his name, I-S-S-A, but Ahmad, Ahmad Al-Isa, or Al-Isa, used his Muslim identity, claims of Islamophobia to intimidate others. That's... That's what we read here. Syrian-born Boulder gunman Ahmad Al-Isa was known to the FBI and ranted online about Islamophobes before killing 10 people at a grocery store with a rifle he bought last week. And in addition to that, Molly Hemingway of The Federalist pointed out on Twitter, as I said, a very helpful for amassing stupid comments by people, but hers is not because she said, OK, so it turns out that the Boulder mass murderer, 10 people were killed. 10. At a grocery store. Um, And so it turns out that he liked the Washington Post and he hated Donald Trump. So can we say he's a leftist and he was a leftist mass murderer? I was looking. Andy No posted this on uh, Wednesday. And there were photographs of the people in the and all of the mass shootings, all of not the victims, 
the perpetrators in all of the mass shootings in 2019, because those are, that's the last year for which we have statistics available. And I'm going to tell you something. I will tell you that there's more diversity in those mass killings. In fact, a lot of brown and black people involved as being mass killers. But you're always told that, you know, majority white people. You know, I bought that. And then I looked at those faces and I went, huh? Yeah. 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 A lot of black and brown faces on the mass shooter uh, bad guy lineup that Andy put out there, which is interesting. A lot of white people, but more black and brown people, which was surprising to me. So now apparently we've gone from being a solely white problem to it's just every we've got actually lots of diversity there. And diversity is our strength, I'm told. Now, I know that sounds like a terrible joke, but and it is, but it's supposed to be ironic. And it is. So anyway, um, all the victims there in Boulder by this Islamic crazy man, all white. All white. There was an assault weapons ban in Boulder. Didn't stop him from going into a, a grocery store and shooting 10 people dead. And I will also tell you, because my initial reaction was, uh, gee, you know, instead of taking away good people's guns, why don't you give more people guns, the good people guns, so that at least everyone knows, hey, there are good people in there with guns and you're not going to live long enough to kill 10 of us. But no, there is open carry in Boulder, Colorado. My guess is I know people who live in Boulder, Colorado, and I can guarantee you that they would never consider carrying a gun because carrying a gun is so, so low de classe even though it's a great tool to keep bad actors like that from shooting you dead. But so I'm sure that open carry is not encouraged in Boulder. Now, Biden, of course, President Biden has called for gun control. He wants to ban AR-15s again. Uh, that's the most used gun in America. And you know what would be refreshing for once if a politician saw a situation and said, you know what, I'm going to rethink that. I'm going to rethink my knee-jerk reaction, which for Joe Biden is to ban AR-15s. You have worked before. He says he wants to ban the gun he wanted to ban and has banned to no effect before. Do you get that? He wants to ban the AR-15, the most used gun in the country, um, that he's banned before, which didn't help, and he wants to do it again. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. Now, Joe's data on the mass killings is incorrect, which I'll go over in a sec. But even Joe knows guns. Joe knows guns. Oh, he knows guns. He knows cops and shootings. Just ask him, as this one woman did in this Q&A in 2013. So she's asking if um, a ban goes into effect on certain kinds of weapons and high-capacity magazines. And what's her name? Um, Kate. Kate. If you want to protect yourself, get a double-barrel shotgun, 
have the shells of 12-gauge shotgun, and I promise you, as I told my wife, we live in an area that's wooded and somewhat secluded. I said, Jill, if there's ever a problem, just walk out on the balcony here, or walk out, put that double-barrel shotgun, and fire two blasts outside the house. I promise you, who's ever coming in is not going to... You don't need an AR-15. It's harder to aim. It's harder to use. And, in fact, you don't need 30 rounds to protect yourself. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. And, of course, everything Joe Biden said in that soundbite is wrong and or illegal. Don't do this at home. Don't, don't do what Joe says. And, in fact, Joe says... If you don't want to get a shotgun, perhaps you could learn how to shoot perps in the lake because that's going to work. Instead of anybody coming at you and the first thing you do is shoot to kill, you shoot them in the leg. Shoot them in the leg because that's going to stop them from shooting you or lunging. That's the ticket. Oh, my gosh. It's insane. It is insane. Okay, so I've got my stats here. FBI stats. From 20, 2007 to 2017, those are the latest for which we have data in this kind of a format. Handguns, not rifles, are illegally used more in homicide cases. And guess what is the worst? Knives. That's right. Here I read here, thanks to Dana Lash for tweeting this out. <clears throat> it, it, and it turns out, <clears throat> she said with her stats, that... Most of these kinds of uh, killings are done with knives. Check this out. When breaking down those shootings by weapons involved, it is revealed that about half of those victims, 253, were murdered by a perpetrator with an assault weapon. This is out of 150,000 cases. And um, over the same time frame, the FBI annual crime report shows that there were 150,352 homicides in total, of which 103,901 involved firearms. This means that mass shootings involving assault weapons constitute 0.17% and 0.24% of all homicides and firearms homicides, respectively. And to further illuminate the relative infrequency of mass shootings with assault weapons, consider the fact that in 2017, some 1,590 people were murdered using knives or sharp instruments so senator john kennedy who's always got something fun to say said that the crimes are horrific the holes in the database of ownership should be tightened he's down for that not for universal background checks but he knows what the problem is we do not need more gun control we need more idiot control in short it's a problem of the heart folks not of guns. If you're willing to kill someone, if you've countenanced the idea of killing someone, that's not the fault of the tool. That is the fault of the fool. I just made something. I sound like Jesse Jackson there. It's not the fault of the tool. It's the fault of the fool. It's, it's a heart problem. If you're willing to kill someone, you'll find a way to do it. And that's why knife crimes are more numerous than gun crimes. Yeah. 261 people were murdered from assault weapons and mass shootings. Now, check this out. 
it would take 135 years worth of mass shootings with assault weapons to produce the 7,032 deaths that handgun homicides did in 2017. 135 years. Just an interesting factoid. Now, there's another problem going on right now, which I've paid a lot of attention to over at PJ Media, as well as uh, filling in over at KTTH. And there's a flood of humanity at the border, and it's all Joe Biden's fault. It's all of it. All of it is. Nobody is even seriously disputing it. Oh, sure, they're doing the, oh, it's Donald Trump. He did that. No, they will tell you. As sort of a, oh, but it's Donald Trump's fault. Joe Biden didn't do any of this. It's all Donald Trump's fault because of his previous inhumane activities at the border, which is to say he solved, well, at least as close as you're going to get the border issue. What did, what did Joe Biden do? On February 2nd, he did away with all of Donald Trump's rules, new rules, regs, way of doing things at the border. The weight in Mexico policy, getting Mexico to help, all of it, all of it. But it's even worse. It's even worse. Sex traffickers, human traffickers, and and get this, slave traders. I want you to remember that, slave traders. They're bringing people from south of the border to across the U.S. border, slave traders, U.S. officials are allowing and endorsing what is tantamount to a slave trade. Now, now why do I say this? An expert on the border I heard um, the other day saying that there is, in fact, going on where $5,000 is being charged. And, you know, what Guatemalan, I'm sorry, do they just, if they have $5,000, why are they coming to the United States to work? They're getting five grand and they have that as uh, fungible funds, right? No, no, they borrow it from the cartels. And then what happens is they have to pay that off. And if they don't pay that off, their family gets it. They have to leave phone numbers of family members. And those numbers are checked before that person is brought up. Because if they don't pay off their, their contract, their indentured servitude, the, the family will get it. They'll probably get it too. Now, Joe Biden must know this, right? Doesn't he? And how does this help the United States of America again? How does this actually help? Here's the the question I wrote over and asked, talked about over at PJ Media. There's the ongoing disaster at the border, I write. On February 2nd, Biden signed executive orders ending the wildly successful programs implemented by Trump to keep the ways of illegal alien caravans at bay and prevent them from overwhelming the immigration system. Overwhelming the system. Remember that phrase. At the time, Biden assured whoever was listening that he would better manage our borders. That's a quote. He promised America would be, quote, safer, stronger and more prosperous when we have a fair, orderly and humane and legal immigration system, end quote. But he hasn't explained how America is safer, stronger and more prosperous by allowing COVID infected people into a country that is partially locked down and afflicted with the same pandemic. The situation at the border is really all you need to know about how serious the Biden administration really is about COVID. 
Apparently, Biden and company are so sanguine about this pandemic that they're purposely importing people with the disease. Now, remember that fact. When Biden issues a mask mandate, decides you can't travel without a vaccine passport, or eat a hot dog with more than three people on the 4th of July. When the border is open, the country is open and it's over. Now Joe Biden's trying to put the genie back in the bottle. You know what he did this week? He said, uh, it's no crisis, but I'm going to implement all, all of Trump's policies. You know, remember the inhumane things, kids in cages, which were in 2014 under the Obama-Biden administration? Now, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Now, I want to just pay a couple minutes... Uh, I want to make sure I tell you about the Chauvin case because I'm watching that case, right? The Chauvin case is the George Floyd case, and everybody's watching it. A couple of real key observations here. And the number one thing is that the jury has been selected in that case, and the arguments get underway next week, the opening arguments, in a trial that never should have been in Minneapolis in the first place. Now, there was a change of venue request, and it was turned down because the judge said, oh my gosh, it's just news everywhere. Where do you think you're going to get a bunch of people who haven't seen that tape yet? Well, of course, there are many places in the country where you could go. Even in Minnesota, you could go. That where people have not eat, slept, and breathed this case, whose homes have been secure, not under a threat of attack by Antifa and BLM, which is where Minneapolis has been, and under siege, and defunding cops, and awarding in the middle of jury selection for this very heated trial, in all likelihood, a $27 million settlement to George Floyd's parents, it's a record-setting settlement, certainly for the state of Minnesota. And they have awarded uh, George Floyd's family $27 million because he was murdered, they said, by the, by the cops. Now, that's for a jury to decide, uh, but the civil suits, I'm sure they, it was like they put on a pork chop suit and said, here, you want, it? you want some of this? Here, take it. And they did it on purpose. They did it to taint the proceedings to paint Chauvin in a worse light than he already has been, which is to say something that is saying something. So we've got the hanging jury that's been selected. We've got, let's see, 15 jurors have been selected because, you know, a couple of them are going to go foobar. 12 jurors, two alternates uh, actually hear uh, the evidence. 15th person chosen in case one of the other panelists is able to serve six men, nine women, nine whites, four blacks, two multiracial. Just a couple of vignettes from their uh, questioning. I, I watched it one day. Ah, let's see. Okay, so let me get to my particular document. Okay, so the 15 people were selected in the George Floyd trial. Juror number two is a white man in his 20s. He's an environmental chemist. Sure. He enjoys outdoor activities, including ultimate frisbee, and he considers himself a logical thinker and is the only juror on the panel who said he has never seen the bystander video of the George Floyd death. I mean, the guy just killed. I mean, honest to God, worst ever. By the way, just FYI, for those of you who don't know, that knee on the neck thing, that is in their training manual. The cops, have, it's been done lots of times, just never for nine minutes. Never, or, you know, almost nine minutes. So another um, juror is a white man in his 30s is an auditor who says he's try he tries to resolve conflict and make decisions uh, based on facts and not on emotions. OK, well, let's just hope to God he does. So just a couple of vignettes. A lot of it's a very young jury. 
And as um, my friend Robert Barnes, who's who's um, an attorney for Mike Strickland, says, it's a hanging jury. It's a hanging jury. So that's what's going on. They, they've just pretty much dumped a stink bomb. Keith Ellison has dumped a, speak, a stink bomb in this case. couple more things you, you need to know. Ellison, who's the attorney general of, I mean, honest to God, this guy is just the worst. Uh, he is so far left, it's hard to find daylight on the other side of him. I mean, good Lord. He hired private attorneys, top line, white shoe, criminal defense attorneys, uh, prosecutors, plain, I don't even know what kind of attorneys they are. They're trial attorneys to try the case against the cop, right? Not prosecutors from the prosecutor's office. These white shoe guys. Now, a couple of things you need to know. In, in addition to seating a jury, in addition to having um, hand-picked, you know, $600 an hour attorneys from some white shoe law firm somewhere trying the case, not prosecutors, these guys trying the case, an army of them. We've got at least some, I guess, exculpatory, if you will, evidence that was allowed in at the behest of the defense. And we didn't think this was going to make it in. And let's just listen. It's a very difficult thing to listen to. I saw this on Tucker Carlson, and it is the the body cam of the cop. And when they first pull over George Floyd, and I want you to listen to it, and he just sounds he sounds terrible. You might hear uh, Carlson's voice here. Uh, if so, deal with it. I know some of you are triggered by that, but come on. We're all adults here. Listen up. Hands on top of your head. Step out of the vehicle and step away from me, all right? Step out and face away. Step out and face away. Please don't shoot me. Please, man. I'm not going to shoot you. Step out and face away. I'm going to get out of here, man. Please don't shoot me, man. I'm not shooting you, man. I just lost my mom, man. Step out and face away. Step out and face away. Please don't shoot me, Mr. Officer. Please. Don't shoot me, man. Step out and face away. Can you not shoot me, man? I'm not shooting you. Step out and face away. Okay, okay, please. Please, please, man. Please, please. I didn't know, man. Get out of the car. I didn't know, Mr. Officer. I didn't know. So George Floyd was emotionally out of control. And that's why you feel so deeply for George Floyd. Some of us did. I did. As you watch that video. He's panicked. He's terrified. He's hysterical. The question is why? The Minneapolis Police Department does not have some fabled history of police brutality. It just doesn't. And this certainly wasn't George Floyd's first encounter with law enforcement. From 1997 to 2007, Texas police arrested George Floyd a total of nine times on charges ranging from drug possession to theft. Then on August 9th, 2007, George Floyd barged into a woman's home and held a gun to her abdomen in front of her toddler. It was a home invasion. And George Floyd got five years in prison for participating in it. So he'd been in custody before. Why was George Floyd on the verge of hysteria? The police officers wondered the same thing. You've got foam around your mouth, said one cop to Floyd. A bystander looking on said to George Floyd, you're going to die of a heart attack. Police then asked Floyd if he had taken drugs. Now, the interesting thing here is that the judge let in similar evidence because it turns out that every time George Floyd was stopped by the cops, which was apparently a lot because the guy was a known 
Uh, he was, a, I, I, you know, he's he was a bad guy. I mean, he wasn't the best guy. He wasn't a murderer. He was just a past guy. He passed bad bills, drug taker, blah blah blah. Here's why he caused such a fuss. Don't shoot me. My mother's just died. I just lost my mother. By the way, his mother's not dead. I don't think. But but be that as it may, this was an act, and he did this every time he got stopped. And so they're allowing in at least one time, a uh, previous time, to establish some sort of pattern. Because what happens was, uh, was that George Floyd would do this and then he would hide the contraband from the sight of the police officers and, if needed, take the contraband. So he would cause all kinds of fuss, uh, ingest whatever he needed to ingest, which he did that day. He ingested a, a bunch of fentanyl, and that's what, in all likelihood, killed him. Obviously, a knee on the neck, probably not helpful. But nevertheless, I mean, if they could have gotten him to a medical, an ambulance, I mean, I wish they had. But anyway, it will make little to no difference to the jury because they're going to they're gonna find Chauvin guilty of one of the three murder charges against him. And... Um, at least that's what I said. The, the, the judge would not give a change of venue, but at least they'll have that sort of exculpatory information allowed into the court, which proves that, or at least they hope it will prove, that George Floyd, this was an act. Every time he got pulled over, he pulled this, don't shoot me, blah, blah, blah. Of course, him being high probably didn't help, probably made him more emotional. Anyway, one more thing. One more thing I got to tell you about, because... This is another case of double standard justice out of Portland involving Antifa. And the case involves Patriot Prayer leader Joey Gibson. He's a Mexican-American who leads the group which has been holding so-called free speech rallies in Portland. They call him a white supremacist. There's more diversity in Patriot Prayer, Proud Boys, etc. than there is in Antifa. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, these guys are from Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys are a Benetton ad, okay? That's what they look like. So anyway, just FYI, so they hold these rallies in Portland, or used to, and they would call them free speech rallies or focus on uh, focus on justice for Jay. That was one of their members who was shot and killed in a, an assassination in downtown Portland for walking down the street and being there by an Antifa guy who was one of their, quote-unquote, security people. Uh, this is how dangerous Antifa has gotten to be. And so what they would do before they, Antifa started shooting people, they would hold these rallies, and then Antifa would show up and say, you can't speak, you're a white supremacist, even though they look like a Benetton ad, and they would stop them, they would try to stop them. And the only time that there wasn't a fight between the two sides, you know, Antifa starts it, Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, would they'd end it, and because they'd fight back, and but they'd wait for him to throw the first punch. I mean, that's pretty much what would happen. So, Antifa fell for it almost every time. It was a total Lucy in the football kind of a thing, and I never endorsed it. Clearly, obviously. So, but whatever happened, now we've got the situation with the um, head of Patriot Prayer, Joey Gibson in uh, like a year and a half, two years ago, goes into the area where Antifa has its uh, headquarters. And I can remember this 
because he put it out on Twitter. Hey, we're going to head over to Cider Riot. And I thought, oh, because that's the Antifa sort of uh, drinking place, their, their watering hole. And Cider Riot, uh, what they did was Joey showed up with his guys and they did nothing. They just stood outside. Didn't even try to go in. The first thing what happened was all the Antifa people masked up and then they started spraying them with bear spray, spitting on them and assaulting them. Joey Gibson, I watched his entire live stream, never, ever did anything violent at all. Didn't threaten, nothing. And you might say being there was threatening. Have at it. Fine. But you can't be the district attorney of Portland, Oregon, and let literal violent offenders and rioters scot-free from doing what they've after doing what they've done and then go after Joey Gibson and accuse him, indeed prosecute him as a rioter under the riot laws of Oregon. He did not commit commit an act of riot. Mike Schmidt, the district attorney of Portland, said he did. And now a special counsel has been named to investigate the investigator, investigate the DA of Portland, Oregon, Multnomah County. And I talked to James Buchel, who's a First Amendment attorney. He's a constitutional expert. He's a, I think he's a Harvard guy, maybe Yale. I don't know. But, you know, sometimes they, sometimes they churn out people on the right, in this case, James Buchel. And he talked to me the other day about what is happening in the Gibson case. Let's listen. James Buchel is an attorney with Murphy and Buchel, LLP. He is the attorney for Joey Gibson of Patriot Prayer who lives in Vancouver, Washington, who's been arrested and is up on charges, uh, showing another case of double standard justice. This in the state of Oregon and, of course, involving a Washingtonian. And James, thanks very much for coming on the air today. And uh, tell us a little bit about what happened to Joey and why is it double standard justice? Well, we uh, I'm representing Mr. Gibson and also his friend, Mr. Russell Schultz, uh, along with a criminal lawyer named Angus Lee. And these people essentially went to protest an Antifa hangout in Portland called Cider Riot. And they just stood there and said things to the Antifa people and filmed their violent reactions. And for that, they were both arrested for the felony of riot. And in the meantime, of course, we all know that over the last year, there have been hundreds of days of riots by Antifa or BLM people struggling, fighting with police officers, whatever, and no riot charges at all. And in fact, the new district attorney who took office last, uh, last August 1st, I guess, immediately put out a policy saying that there wouldn't be any of these charges. And so we are seeing a fantastic double standard, just like the one that's playing out in the District of Columbia now with people who, who were at the Capitol. Uh, as a matter of fact, we had a discussion about that and uh, had an interview uh, with Julie Kelly about a particular case of uh, the Kua family and the 18-year-old son, and they will not release this kid, at least uh, beginning 
that's the way they started talking, because his parents think wrong thoughts. And I imagine that some of that has come up in the Joey Gibson case, primarily because some of the evidence was marked uh, having to do with Christianity, because these this is a patriot prayer group, ostensibly uh, basing its beliefs on Christianity. So tell me a little bit about that aspect of it. Well, that aspect, um, we, we, we had hopes uh, after we went to the state court and said, wait a minute, this is the First Amendment, this is protected, and the state court said, no, you know, we can't do that. We, we don't really offer you any remedy for your constitutional rights. Come and see us after you've been convicted, and then we can talk about your constitutional rights. So we went to federal court, where we uh, were assigned a judge appointed by President Trump, uh, Judge Honorable Karen Immergut. And um, we thought maybe she would pay attention to our federal constitutional rights. And so she did allow us some discovery into the files of the district attorney. And in the files of the district attorney, we found things like pictures of Mr. Gibson, which which were given names like Joey Rooted in Christ and, and other ant- comments that could be construed as anti-Christian comments. Um, but I think the core of the the core of the case here is that this is a politically based prosecution. It was uh, put in front of a grand jury based on essentially false testimony. Uh, arrest warrants were issued on the basis of false affidavits. Uh, it was timed to prevent him from participating in political events at the time, and and. And it's just it's just a gross abuse of the criminal power of the state of Oregon. And what did he do again? He showed up at Cider Riot and his mere presence was triggering to the Antifa crowd. And so therefore he was arrested for riot. Yeah, exactly. And he threw nothing. I mean, the, the Antifa people threw things at him. They 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 hit they assaulted him. They pepper sprayed him and he didn't he didn't fight back at all. He he behaved in in in, in <laughs> fashion consistent with Christianity, actually, and just filmed it and said, you know, here they are. Here we are. It's a riot at Cider Rock. Look at the way they're acting. Mm-hmm. And that was his purpose. And and basically, the theory of the prosecution is essentially, well, you know, you were sort of provoking them. And so, you know, that's that's not good. And we, we get to put you in jail for a felony because you said the wrong things to the wrong people. Were any people who spat upon him or came after him, bear sprayed him that day, charged? No, none of them. And at least three of them are known to the police. There are people who engaged in fist fights. There's people who attacked Mr. Gibson personally. They're all known to the police. None of them are arrested. None of them prosecuted. It's totally one-sided enforcement of the criminal laws. Double standard justice again, as we saw in Washington, D.C., and are seeing there with respect to the Capitol rioters, especially that Kua case, and uh, which we've been talking about here, as a matter of fact. Um, so James Buchel, who is the attorney for Joey Gibson's, as well as another co-defendant in Portland, and these guys are both from Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken. So Washingtonians, yeah. they're Patriot Prayer guys, so they come over the Columbia to just watch and see what's going on. And sometimes I've seen them get in fights with Antifa, but usually they throw the last punch, not the first one, just to say that uh, I'm not their uh, I don't apologist. think you've ever seen. I don't think you've ever seen Mr. Gibson or Mr. Schultz um, involved in fights. I mean, there are there are some people who are involved in right. fights after they've been sufficiently provoked. They don't have the self control uh, that Mr. Gibson and Mr. Schultz did. But he, he Mr. Ha- Schultz is a is especially bad example because he 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 just sort of stood there and 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 talked and 
and talk to people and and he 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 wasn't even a a primary person in the sense that Mr. Gibson so it, it all boils down to what happened at Cider Riot, which is now the defunct headquarters of Antifa in downtown Portland. And I watched, I believe, every stitch of Joey Gibson's live stream that day when he was down there. And not once did he throw a punch. Not once did he antagonize people. As a matter of fact, he encouraged people to, to talk. And at one point in time, there was a fight not involving him. But uh, And then Joey Gibson said, hey, let those guys fight. I mean, this is not our deal here. If you guys want to fight Antifa, you want to fight that guy, great. We'll, we'll watch, but that's about it. Um, and well, I it was better than that. It was better than that. The, the, one of the people invited involved in the fight was later interviewed by the Liquor Control Commission. And he said, essentially, that Mr. Gibson protected him because there would have been a bunch of people jumping in and right. he would have been outnumbered. And, 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 and Mr. Gibson was, no, no, you know, this is one-on-one. -on -one. They're right. doing that. Let them do that themselves. He was, he was preventing an escalation in violence. So that was the day. That's what happened. And I, I agree that with the characterization you just made, James Buchel. Um, but now there is a special prosecutor if you will, for this particular case because of the double standard justice and the railroading, apparently, by uh, Multnomah County prosecutors. How did they lie again? And um, because you said that there were fraudulent uh, affidavits. And and uh, what will this particular special counsel do? Well, in terms of how they lied, uh, the arrest warrant was issued. Let me back up a second. The person, the, the, the riot at Cider Riot, I think, drew the notoriety it did because right at the end of it, a woman named Heather Clark was hit with a baton or something and fell to the ground and it was filmed and went everywhere. And, and the Multnomah County District Attorney issued a affidavit that said that Mr. Gibson had been observed pushing this same woman, which was completely false. I mean, it was so false that in the Oregon Liquor Commission report, which wasn't afflicted with this political bias, there's an exhibit to it that and the title of the exhibit is something like Heather Clark attacks Mr. Gibson mm. because she got mm. mad at someone else and charged right through him to get to somewhere else where she then was hit with the baton. And and so this this false testimony painting him as being at the center of a physical alteration with the woman who was injured was the core of the case for why there was probable cause for an arrest. And it was just not true. So and now you have a special counsel. Does this person have the force of law? I mean, is this going to be uh, binding? I don't I don't I don't think so. I think it's a it's essentially it's a recommendation. And so it, that will be. That will be for the for the next level after that. It just says that there'll be an investigation, and at the conclusion of the investigation, there are findings that are sent to the district attorney. And so it will be interesting to see whether the Yamhill County District Attorney is willing to say to the Multnomah County District Attorney, "Yeah, you're you're not behaving consistently with our American ideal of equal justice under law here. You're singling these people out and violating their constitutional rights by." prosecuting them because you, you you're you're hostile to their political beliefs yeah um and who was able to get that person assigned the yamhill district attorney to look into the multnomah county district attorney's prosecution of this case right they get to they get to pick who to farm it out to oh okay so who assigned it then 
I, I presume it was either the district attorney or one of his deputies. We just got an email from um, a man named Jeffrey House, who's the first assistant to the district attorney, saying the Amhill County District Attorney's Office has agreed to review your allegations and the Amhill County District Attorney, Brad Berry, will oversee the investigation. Interesting. It has been double standard justice in Multnomah County pertaining to Antifa versus anybody else. This has got to be particularly galling to you. You are a constitutional law expert and a former Republican Party chair in Multnomah County, which is a thankless job, by the way. And uh, <laughs> I also say that, uh, you know, people owe you a debt of gratitude for at least sticking up for Joey Gibson, because clearly no one else will. It's tough. Uh, he said when he came to my office, he'd been to a lot of other offices and no one would take the case. Um, so it's it's really an ugly climate out there. It really is uh, something sinister that's evolving here, where everyone is living in a state of fear and of course, the COVID thing made it even worse. So I can only hope that Yamhill County still has enough right-thinking people who believe in American ideals that they'll say, well, we're not you know, we're not down with this kind of stuff you're doing in Multnomah County. We don't think that's right. What's your impression of what happened to the Capitol and how those people are being treated in uh, the prosecution by the FBI? Well, I didn't office. go, but the eyewitness accounts I've read says that most of the people were just sort of in a crowd. And then there were these, these there were sort of different distinct groups of people who were pushing, you know, attacks and so forth and so on and trying to herd the crowd around. And and so I don't, I don't know that we've gotten to the bottom of who were these people. You know, you see on a video people in combat fatigues, you know, moving like a disciplined unit through the crowd toward a particular objective. You hear things about particular items being stolen, and then it just vanishes into the void. Who was it? Instead, you hear about the FBI coming around and, you know, threatening all the people who were just standing around or even arresting them. And so I, I, my impression is that it's, it's an astounding it's just it's 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 sick and evil. OK, I mean, if you review the history of protests in Washington, D.C., I mean, even in the in the 60s, when they when they took RFK Stadium and then they they ran, you know, thousands of these people and and, and put them in fences in RFK Stadium and arrested them all. All those charges were promptly dismissed. The ACLU got in there and 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 and. And, and, you know, defended all these people and, and nobody was was held locked up in jail for weeks and weeks and weeks like this. It's just it's just it's just a gross abuse of government power. It, it just makes me sick to see this happening to our country. James Buchel, thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Now, this seems like a pretty good time to turn to Antifa versus Mike Strickland, the verdict. And I'll catch you next time. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Get out of here, racist. I'm not a racist. Dude, don't get 
Before the nightly riots we've seen in the news, there was one case. The first case, the case of Mike Strickland. Now at noon, another court appearance today for the man caught on camera waving a gun at protesters in Portland last month, and now he faces a lot more charges. Michael Strickland faces 21 counts connected to that incident. He was a journalist who was beaten by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters, and he defended himself from the mob with his legal gun, and not a shot was fired. Our position hasn't changed, our client's position has not changed, that he is not guilty, that he was using the um, weapon to protect himself, and he was doing so within his rights. The only one hurt that day in July of 2016 was Mike Strickland, and the only one punished was Mike Strickland, the victim. I'm of the firm and steadfast opinion that when they come for Strickland's rights, they're coming for mine next. See, Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but Antifa is really anti-First Amendment. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. This is the story of Mike Strickland. Good morning. Thank you. Please be seated. Are continuing in State versus Strickland. In our last episode of Antifa versus Mike Strickland, the prosecution had just called a surprise or ambush witness, but Strickland and his attorneys were closer to a verdict than even they had an inkling of. Notice was given only the night before about the surprise witness, giving Strickland's attorneys little time to prepare. And that's the way things had been at this trial. Strickland was arrested and prosecuted, even though he was, in the minds of many, the actual victim. Even anarcho-Antifa-friendly media, Mike Bluehair and James Peach, who saw most of the incident July of 2016, thought so. I think Strickland was acting in self-defense because he wasn't the one that grabbed him. He didn't grab himself and drag him out of a protest. He didn't physically... He wasn't anything at all. Yeah, no, he was, he, was just, he was just there filming, and they, you know, according to all the eyewitnesses, including James right here beside me, because where I started watching was where I started filming from. When you see my video, that's when I caught wind of what was happening. But multiple eyewitnesses said that he was grabbed and pushed around. And, you know, why, why those people weren't charged with harassment under the Oregon Revised Statute, I don't know. Because aggressive touching 
or touching someone in a manner that that's uh, you know unwanted, unwarranted. That, that's harassment. That's, that's a misdemeanor. Yeah, it's a misdemeanor it's crime. Batter, and, and, uh, but, uh, I'm pretty sure that the uh, assault charges have to have a pain compl- uh, component. But uh, I'm reasonably sure that it's at, at the very least it's harassment under the Oregon Revised Statute. So, which, which no one was charged, which I don't get. No one else got it either. False statements, outright lies about the videographer's so-called white nationalist roots were drummed up by the so-called prosecutor and her assets to increase the bail for Mike Strickland to $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars for pulling his gun to stop a mob of Antifa and BLM members from hurting him again. No shots were ever fired. No one was hurt except Mike Strickland. The threats and racist remarks brought up to inflate Strickland's bail and make him seem more dangerous, perhaps, inflamed the public, but were never spoken of in court, ever, because they weren't true. Even prosecutors on the come, hoping to achieve great heights in law, wouldn't try that at court, and things got worse. Strickland's attorneys were forbidden from speaking to the media about discovery in the case. They were gagged by the judge as if it were a gang or sex abuse case. They could talk about practically nothing. All information coming out on the Strickland case was being orchestrated by the local leftist weekly newspapers and the pro-Antifa and anti-gun mindset of the Portland media and anti-gun groups. Almost all of it. My writing at victoriataft.com provided a counter-narrative to what was going on in the courtroom, but it wasn't enough to overcome the constant drumbeat of the news media talking about how dangerous and supremacist Mike Strickland supposedly was. There was something, some reason, that Mr. Strickland was being treated differently. Um, starting with the uh, obscenely high security amount, you know, and they wanted a quarter of a million dollars. And at the time, there was no indictment. There was actually just a, um, I believe, two counts uh, total. Um, And so then that is just extremely high for what those charges are for someone that doesn't have any criminal history. And so there was that, and then um, we get to the... um, actual um, indictment process where it gets down to a 21 count indictment from a couple counts and so um, and then after that um, the state moved um, filed a motion for a protective order and what the protective order they're moving for is to not allow either the defense team or Mr. Strickland to be able to um, duplicate or talk about anything in the discovery Okay, and so back to my point is something was different. And when you look into what makes that difference, um, it seems like the X factor is politics, political affiliation, it appears to me. And Mr. Strickland, it's no secret, is a videographer. He's obviously got the things that he produces online and and, uh, publicly available. And he's um, the type of work that he's done has gone to um, expose corruption. And given the uh, power structure, given the um, who's in power in this area, that it typically has been people on the left. 
And so those same people are in power, and those are the people who enforce the laws. Those are the people that decide who gets charged, who doesn't get charged. And it seems clear to us from everything that we can see, looking at using police lingo, this totality of the circumstances, looking at everything, it seems that the reason he's – because there's no question he's been treated differently. And it appears that the reason, the basis for that differential treatment appears to be his political affiliation uh, because there's really nothing else that we're aware of that could be the basis. The uh, deputy DA said in court that she got word that – uh, word on the street or you know, whatever it is uh, that uh, Michael Strickland was a white nationalist and that was the reason why the bail was so high. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, she said that and she said a couple other things. Uh, my first problem was that there it was a couple of hearsay statements from someone who's not a witness. So it's not even really hearsay. It's I mean, it's like something worse, something less reliable. And so based on no evidence, uh, the state uh, got what they wanted, though, was the increased security. But first of all, as I said, there is a protective order. So anything that we have received in discovery, I literally am not allowed to duplicate or publish or talk about it, okay? What I can say is things outside of the discovery. um, And so I just want everyone to understand that there's, there's a reason why we can't talk about certain things. And... We can talk about the problems in my complaints about the existence of a protective order in the case of this nature at all. But um, what do I have to respond to that is um, those are allegations put forth by people who don't like Mr. Strickland. Um, And um, he is not affiliated with, he is not a white supremacist. Um, That specific allegation, to my knowledge, is absolutely false. Even so... Efforts to move the trial from the less volatile and hyperpartisan Multnomah County were denied. And just like in the Sky Fitzgerald case before it, involving Mike Strickland, when the documentary filmmaker assaulted and robbed Strickland of his cameras and broke his arm in three places, sending him to the hospital and out of work for months, his assaulters were never charged in this case either. As Strickland attorney Jason Short said at the time, so many extra charges and how it's so different from similar type of cases, even in that own county, even in Multnomah County. And I'm sure there will be different outcomes in subsequent cases that we see of someone pulling out a firearm. I'm, I don't think it'll be ever the same. This is a anomaly. Isn't it true that Rod Underhill is a pretty anti-gun district attorney? Do you think that's at play here at all? I don't know. I don't know. I would have to know him personally to know that. I just I don't know anything about that. But what I do know is the fact that when the district attorney's office proceeded to not uh, proceed on a clear, on tape, on video, of an assault, of a theft, um, where we're not talking about something that was just a scratch were, you know, broken in, I think, two or three parts. Is that right, Chris, yeah. in his arm? Yeah, it was a serious, it was a serious, serious injury. A very serious injury where clearly there was no punches thrown beforehand. You know, no claim of saying, well, I acted in self-defense because Mr. Strickland was attacking me or assaulting me. Clearly that wasn't the case. And what is just as shocking is the fact that that would not be prosecuted. That someone that he would not be prosecuted for for assaulting Mr. Strickland or for th- taking his personal property or anything of that nature, yep. just mind-boggling. 
Strickland's attorneys thought they were overseeing a self-defense case, but the overlay of politics got in the way of a fair trial. They were stunned. Most days in the courtroom were Penny Alcomodo's Ceasefire Oregon activists sitting in the gallery, or pearl-wearing Moms Demand Action activists, all anti-gun groups, sitting and watching. Key evidence was disallowed. Evidence pointing to Strickland's state of mind was disallowed from what his attorneys thought was a self-defense trial. And several other things were not allowed to be admitted either. Strickland himself told me about them last year. There's a bevy of these due process errors, you know, things relating to my mindset, you know, my statements to the detective, uh, the fact that uh, we haven't even gotten into what happened the year before all this happened when my arm was broken and I had two video cameras stolen from me. That weighs into my mindset, but that was ruled to be inadmissible. All, all of my training, my knowledge, my study of Antifa groups leading up to this was all ruled to be inadmissible. Uh, the denial of the change of venue. So basically, can a district attorney go before media and tell defamatory lies about a defendant? If they can do it to me, they can do it to anyone. They can take a black defendant and say, yeah, we, we've, we've heard someone read it. Someone said it on the Internet that this guy's a child molester. Mm -hmm. He has ties to street gangs. He's, uh, he's a drug trafficker, even though none of it may be true. As of right now, because the, the higher courts in Oregon affirmed it, district attorneys can say that and use that to unduly influence juries. If they can do it to me, they can do it to some black defendant or an immigrant or a Muslim. Or all anyone. these groups that all these little left-wing organizations are claiming they want to defend, these same standards are going to be used against them. You know, the, the due process in regards to the ambush witness that came up. Uh, which is not only in contradiction to state laws, not only in contradiction to the uh, judge's uh, bench handbook, uh, but it's also in contradiction to uh, state Supreme Court case law. State v. Flygear is one of them where a similar thing happened, and they ruled that, no, you can't have that. Um, you know, all these different things, all converging all at once now. So this isn't just a First Amendment case. This is not just a Second Amendment case. This is not just a due process case. It is all of them rolled into one. But Mike Strickland was still amazed at how the person who started it all conspired with Antifa, admitted it in court, and carried out the plan with Antifa, admitted it in court. Ben Carenza was never charged with attacking him. It's a mystery to this day. Seconds after the ambush surprise witness testified, the law enforcement officer who said Strickland was not right to defend himself that day in Portland, Judge Thomas Ryan said he was ready to rule. He said the only thing on trial was what Strickland did, not what any of the Antifa and BLM mob did to cause him to believe he needed to defend himself. Not their assaults, not their wax with their flagstaffs, not scaring him, not attacking him. None of it mattered. It only mattered that he pulled his gun. I've had a lot of time to consider the evidence in this case. The case has been extremely well tried. 
I'm ready to rule. Uh, we do have a uniform trial court rule that uh, people remain calm during a verdict. Calm isn't the word in the rule, but uh, you know, that's close enough. I'm going to do this mostly just as a jury would, uh, but I'm going to make just a very brief comment first. The issue here is not whether those who approached Mr. Strickland took the most appropriate action that they could have taken. They did not all do so. The issue is the actions taken by Mr. Strickland in response and whether they were justified self-defense. The actions did constitute unlawful use of a weapon and menacing and disorderly conduct in the second degree and the state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the acts were not in self-defense. The defendant is guilty of all counts. The judge said it didn't matter what the mob did, Strickland pulling his weapon the way he did it to stop them from attacking him was illegal. He could go to prison for 50 years for being found guilty on all counts. He had to be given a psychological evaluation to make sure he wasn't nuts before he was sentenced, as if what he did was crazy. And what now? Next time on Antifa versus Mike Strickland. Remember to subscribe, follow, rate five stars, and give me a great review over at your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, and Spotify, to name the big boys. And follow me on social media. I'm over at Parlor, MeWe, Minds, Facebook, and Twitter, at Victoria Taft. Don't forget the Adult in the Room podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. At the Adult in the Room podcast, except Twitter only has room for the Adult in the, Adult in the, at Adult in the fine. It works. Get in touch with me at Victoria at victoriataft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.